Welcome to episode 469 of the Cyber Law Podcast and the last episode before we go on our summer hiatus until September. So enjoy this one, savor it, keep it and play it again. We are lawyers talking technology, security, privacy and government, and we're about to express views that none of our institutions, clients, friends, family or pets would likely agree with, except, you know, randomly. Joining me for the News Roundup, Jeffrey Attic, who is the professor of law at Loyola Law School and who works with the Quantum Law Research Project at Lund University. Richard Steenan, who is the executive editor of Security Current and founder of IT Harvest. Gus Hurwitz, who has changed jobs again and is now a senior fellow at the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Technology, Innovation, and Competition, and a director of law and economics programs at the ICLE, the International Center for Law and Economics. Gus, that's the last time I'm going to say all of that. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host of today's program and the chief provocateur. Why don't we jump right into one of the stories which got a lot of play. It was actually over the weekend. A bunch of AI companies went to the White House and gave the White House pledges about how they were going to responsibly develop artificial intelligence. Gus, this looked like a mixed bag of abstract apple pie promises and a few concrete things that sounded like they were okay ideas. Yeah, well, I think the key to focus on is this is a bag of promises. This isn't legislation. This is a voluntary commitment that these companies are making to the White House arguably, I mean, technically, officially only binding on them. They don't have the power to do anything more than that. I think it signals a evolving and not at all surprising trend in how regulators are thinking about artificial intelligence, which is, big surprise, self-regulation. Try and get commitments from these companies that are going to be public and at least in a soft law sense of the word binding. We'll be able to hold them accountable by pointing fingers at them uh, if they don't do stuff. And that will hopefully lead to accountability in the sense that in the future, if there's need for regulation, we'll have some sense of what to do. The most interesting to me of the public commitments that the companies have made is to include some level of watermarking into the outputs of these AI systems. Yeah, I saw the same thing. I thought that was one of the more specific promises. And it sounds like the White House must have pressed them all for that to get that kind of uh, commitment. Yeah, the idea is putting aside all the technical questions of how do you implement this? Is it actually circumventable or will it work? But the idea is make it possible to identify when a piece of content was generated by some AI system, a large language model or whatever. Um, And there are lots of ways technically that we might be able to do this. But putting my educator, law professor hat on, sure, it sounds great to be able to uh, run all your exams through the open AI verification system and get a ping back from them that says, yes, we generated this piece of content or not. Obviously, massive questions about how you actually implement that. Right. Especially if the product itself, the content itself has to carry the watermark, which is what watermarking implies, that you don't have to go to a database to see if it was produced. It will tell you by interrogating the product. That's going to be tough to do because as people figure out where the watermarks are, they're going to also figure out ways to take them out. Yeah. And one of the things I'd say, some of the pieces of coverage I've seen on this have expressed skepticism 
about would this work for images and audio, I think that that's exactly backwards. Yeah, it's easier. It's a lot easier to embed a watermark in an image or an audio file where there's a lot of background noise and there's a steganography. It's a lot harder to embed a watermark in yeah. a piece of text, which really has a much less amount of data in it. And you can tell if there's a typo, you can't tell if one of the pixels in an image is a slightly different shade of yellow or something. Yep. I'm completely with you. The other thing I was interested in, they said they were going to do security testing of their products, which again, good idea. But there was an express call out of biosecurity, which I think tells us that in the parts of the community that are not having this debate publicly, there's a lot of worry about the use of AI to develop new viruses, new bioweapons that will act on human beings in a variety of ways. Of course, I don't want to channel RFK, but he has suggested that some of the bioweapons could be ethnically targeted, which is certainly true. So there does seem to be a real concern that one of the worst early uses of AI will be to go through the genome and find a whole bunch of stuff that we're susceptible to that nature hasn't yet discovered. So I thought you were going to say bias security. I'll briefly note that one of the other things that the pledge encompasses is bias reporting for these systems. So the companies are going to be issuing some reports. But you're right, there are going to be security audits. I always loathe to talk about this. The biosecurity area is so fascinating. And I have a colleague, a former PhD student who actually did his dissertation on cybersecurity and synthetic biology, basically programmable biology. And it is some of the most fascinating, potentially groundbreaking, good for humanity stuff out there. And anytime you talk about it, you very quickly go down the rabbit hole of, oh, and some crazy mad scientist in his lab with $5,000 worth of equipment could develop a pathogen that would kill everyone on the planet with blue eyes. And okay, well, that sounds crazy. Um, <laughs> yes. But uh, on the flip side of that, I don't think this is usually thought of as AI, but a year or two ago, Google made massive news with its breakthrough with solving the protein folding problem. And that was basically an AI style application and the medical benefits of solving the protein folding problem, basically being able to predict the functional characteristics of proteins computationally without running through actual testing in the lab. It, it's just massive. So these are really important concerns and challenges that we don't want to foreclose the ability to do this kind of research. Yeah, it's very troubling, and there's no obvious good way out of this. Probably the only good way out is, is through to start looking for the most obvious bioweapons candidates and starting to develop countermeasures. Pretty scary. All right. So Lawfare had a nice piece comparing all of the AI regulation around the world, and Reuters had a piece about how the EU is trying to get Asia to jump on board with their framework for regulation. I didn't see a lot new there, except I wasn't aware that the UK had kind of said, we're not going to be coming up with new regulation or at least not new legislation. I thought it was fun to read what the Asians had to say about the EU framework. 
Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And it echoes the point that I started with, that the converging trend is towards industry self-regulation for the time with some amount of government auditing or awareness of what the industry is doing. A big brother has an eye on you sort of approach. The Asian rejection or Asian countries rejection of the EU approach That's basically, I read that as a a pretty clear statement to the European Union, your approach is losing. Countries around the world recognize that this is going to be developed. We can't stop it. We can't take a precautionary approach to it. If we try to, we're going to be economic losers. So it remains to be seen, will the European Union stick to its guns and continue down the path of condemning its economic growth to a trajectory of minimalism? Um, But I expect the answer is yes, but the technologies will uh, continue to be developed. The show will go on. I couldn't help thinking of the, I had that dialogue with Max Schrems in which I referred to GDPR as a kind of quasi-neo-colonial measure in which their rules were imposed on the rest of the world. And he was just shocked, shocked that anyone would say that. And I will say, nothing rebuts that argument like trying to sell your regulatory agenda to your former colonies. Um, Okay. Jeff, one of the stories also indicated that Chuck Schumer has decided to put a bunch of his AI regulatory proposals into the NDAA. I have to say I was really underwhelmed with the proposals that he planned to instantiate in law. Yeah, the actual parts of the manager's bill, which is the part, I guess, that Schumer personally controls, does have some AI measures that have something to do with the Defense Department's operations, but they are rather minor. It it almost seems as if he's doing something just for the sake of doing something with regard to the regulation of AI. Way of kind of oh, that couldn't happen. This is Washington. That wouldn't happen. <laughs> the potential of breaking a law jam and actually, you know, pointing yeah. to some kind of motion on Congress's part. What's also interesting is obviously there are a bunch of other senators out there that have their own pet AI projects and the possibility that other things could be stapled on and get a little bit more content unlikely to be anything earth-shaking if any of this survives either Senate procedures or the eventual reconciliation with the House on the Defense Department's budget. So the effort to regulate AI has already brought out of the woodwork the people who live off of rent from their income at the intersection of commerce and intellectual property. So all these authors telling AI companies that they have to pay them because they've been stealing their books by running the content through their training process. I'm pretty hard on that. I know there are people who take that very seriously. It feels like fair use to me. Do you have a view about whether all this talk about stealing books is going to pay off for the authors? Yeah, I have a a pretty strong, perhaps not informed, but pretty strong view that it's not even fair use. It's simply not infringement at all. You know, a lot of what they're complaining about is use of their material. But, you know, copyright doesn't prohibit generally use of copyrighted materials. It's very specific. It only prohibits, for the most part, copying, making creative works. And it's unclear legal terrain whether any of this is infringing. And indeed, the Authors Guild almost admits that that's the case. It's more of a kind of moral plea to help authors who perhaps are going to be disadvantaged by the emergent computer-generated possibilities that are ahead. It's a very strange letter that says, we're begging you for this favor, you thief. Yes. So, you know, (laughs) I'm always suspicious in the IP context when 
the term thievery or theft gets thrown around because that that generally signals that there might be a weak legal basis to, in fact, insist on any kind of compensation. I, I don't want to be too flippant because there's a part of my heart that is sympathetic with the authors. But again, this is part of what is emerging as a much bigger fight over what is the scope of training data. We all understand that training data has to be ample for any of these tools to work, and training data has to be kept to the extent possible, as clean as possible. If the Google Book Project isn't available as training data, that raises some perhaps public concerns that countervail the interests of the respective authors. I do understand why an author would be a little bit wary of somebody who puts in a prompt, write something in the style of Stuart Baker. That starts looking very personal because obviously they're going to weigh the available works of that author in, in generating that. But I'm not sure that this is a direction that we want to go in. I think there is kind of really reasons to protect the possibility of an ample training data set. Yeah. And these disputes hang on forever once they've started. Uh, this Instagram embedding copyright lawsuit has been a lawsuit that could have been brought for 30 years. Basically, the, the claim is that if you put a link on your website that links to an image or something else on somebody else's site, that you have infringed the copyright of the site you link to, which I think was a pretty shaky claim when it was first made. It hasn't gotten any better. But only now are we starting to see appellate decisions that say, yeah, no, it's it's not a copyright infringement. Yeah, I mean, this particular technique of embedding in a display that somebody sees on their computer screen has been not settled because it's, it's only an appellate court decision, but fairly well received for quite a long time. And it's not surprising the outcome of the specific case that the court wasn't willing to, in fact, extend the notion of copying to the instance of an embedded link that then displays on somebody's computer. It's an interesting example of how technologically formalistic copyright analysis has been. When the courts ask themselves, is this copy or not, they are literally focused at a technological level, whether it's copying or not, and not, again, perhaps what the authors and others would like to see a more general inquiry about, is it fair for this use to be permitted or not? So the technological formalism, you know, pro produces some odd and counterintuitive results. And for an ordinary person who just sees a computer screen, may not understand that only part of it is coming from the site to which they're plugged and other things are just being composed before their eyes but don't involve technical or formal copying. That little trick seems to work for the law and nothing in this case seems to suggest the dominance of a technologically formalistic approach in copyright. All right. Wrapping up our AI roundup, there's a couple of other stories. I think you and Gus were interested in the effort that OpenAI is making to ensure that nobody can use its engine to recognize people, which, of course, would be easy as pie with a good visual trained model. And so they are they're having to blur faces and otherwise take action to prevent face recognition uses. And I understand why, right? The, the EU and the state of Illinois have made that very expensive. Right. And again, this is a really 
interesting legal question. How much will the ultimate product that is made available to us, the AI-driven product, is circumscribed in space by certain bounds that are set by the human engineers. And right now we have a human engineered response. We're going to blur faces that pop up in response to a particular prompt. That's not the AI doing it. That's the engineer effectively preventing the AI from doing it. But does that human fingerprint on the ultimate deliverable does that color our view as to how much the machine might be responsible versus how much would human engineering be responsible in a way that would drive legal consequences? Well, I, th- I think at least with a BIPA, which is the Illinois law, mm-hmm. collecting the measurements of somebody's face is a uh, biometric collection that you can't do without a fair number of formalities. So there is there is a real risk that buried in your AI model are the mechanical and digital tools necessary to recreate faces. And that might be enough to create massive liability. Well, if you're right about that, Stuart, then blurring isn't doing anything. That's right. The essence of the offense has already occurred and is complete, regardless of the of the blurring. So the blurring just becomes a public relations gesture. Or it may be that if it's not tied to an identity, that that would be permissible. But my experience with BIPA is that the courts have been very literal, not necessarily very aggressive sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, but quite literal. And so your face measurements constitute biometrics. And if they are collected, you have to have consent. You have to destroy it after three years. A whole bunch of things that no AI engine is going to be able to do. So I I would say one of the fascinating things this illustrates the entire discussion on the copyright side of things, there is some clear problematicness to how these systems are working with these materials. And it also technically pretty clearly doesn't fall under the auspices of the law. On the uh, other side, there is also some clear problematicalness, perhaps, on the facial recognition side of things. And when I say that, in both these cases, there are good uses as well. But with BIPA and similar laws, it's almost impossible. I think there are fair readings of BIPA under which you could say it's almost impossible for these systems not to be violating BIPA. And what I think this really illustrates is we're in the early days of figuring out what the regulations, what the rules governing these systems, even just how to conceptualize the governance of these systems, because they are so fundamentally different from our human experience with how we produce, use, consume, analyze information, that we're just still uh, groping at the elephant and occasionally we're going to be kicked by it, which is pretty scary. And I'd say that the facial recognition, some of the companies have voluntarily expressed concern and said, we're not going to enable these technologies, these features. We've also seen similar things with voice recreation, voice synthesis. Some companies have said, look, we've developed this technology and we're not going to release it because we think the risk of abuse is too great. And I I think there's a really important element of leadership going on there with companies that are first movers that develop these technologies. And then they say, look, everyone, we have this capability. We've decided not to release it. That's a signal to regulators and other companies that, hey, 
you all could do this too, but maybe you shouldn't. And that that's going to, I think, continue to play an important role in the self-regulation discussion around these technologies. So how do you think that this plays to what Meta is doing, which is clearly different from what OpenAI and Google are doing, which is developing tools and keeping them proprietary? Uh, Meta pretty clearly is of the view that uh, it should develop the tools and make them available, or at least the, the fruits of those tools, in an open framework to, that would allow. Meta, I'm sure, will put in all the usual standard security things so that your AI can't use bad words or show a disproportionate number of minority groups or majority groups in a response to a search. But their open source tool can quite easily shed all of that and be used for whatever the open source developer wants to be used for. So is this meta being clever and letting other people go out there and throw themselves on the barbed wire to open a path, or are they being irresponsible? So I guess I'll I'll jump in and say something, and then Jeff, if you want to uh, jump in as well. The open source genie has been out of the bottle with these technologies for a while. That said, what they're releasing is either the processed results of analyzing massive data sets or the tools that would enable others if they happen to have $100 million supercomputers at their disposal and gigawatts of electricity to analyze and massive amounts of data, terabytes of data to analyze, produce their own massive data sets. So at some level, we don't need to worry about the mad scientist problem, I'll call it, because the computational resources to do novel things with these technologies are there still is a pretty serious barrier to entry and it's unlikely that that's going to change in the near term what one additional thing in the news this week that i'll mention that's not quite on the open source side of things but qualcomm announced that they're going to be integrating some of these large language models into forthcoming iterations of their chipsets. So you're basically going to have a AI coprocessor or a large language model. I, I don't remember the details of which systems they're uh, implementing, but uh, let's assume it's a large language model. You're going to have a large language model coprocessor on many smartphones that are going to be sold around the world coming up pretty soon. But that's, again, going to be a pretty static distillation of a set of data sets that are uh, applicable, usable for a certain set of applications. Yeah. Well, what might be behind what Meta is doing is that by making available their large language model tools, it permits integration with other kinds of software to produce, you know, new kinds of derivative products that it are perhaps more address more specific applications, so we might get a more sure. It's it's kind of the red hat the red hat model, right? right? It's it, it's an ecosystem. We open source this, but we really know how it works, and we can think of ways to, that it can be used, and that can be our proprietary contribution. Yeah, but that said, it is interesting that they're not in their general license that they're going to make available. They're not setting any kind of any kind of limitation. So it does undercut this idea that. We can rely on the goodwill of, at this moment, tight number of companies that have this at their 
disposal. Obviously, as it expands, we're going to have more and more concerns about free riders and other kinds of renegades that might get access to this. I just wanted to make the kind of interesting, at least to me, and perhaps hypocritical thing about this. You know, in some sense, Meta's taking the high ground in releasing its Twitter competitive product. If Twitter represents under Musk, the Wild West, the unregulated, they're saying, no, we're the adult in the room in the Twitter space. Yet here in the LLM space, they're taking a rather Muskian approach. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you can't scratch somebody in Silicon Valley without finding a, a musk in, in, in ambition, if not in fact. Okay. So Richard, I want to take you back to something we talked about actually last week, I think, which is the National Cybersecurity Strategy Implementation Plan, which was the White House saying, okay, we have a strategy and now we're going to tell you how we implement it. And I said nice things about it because it in form was pretty good. It said, here's what we said in the strategy. Here's who's in charge. Here's what we're planning to do. Here's when it's going to get done. And all of that was true. But the Atlantic Council Cyber Statecraft Initiative went through and marked it up. They basically just had all their folks treat it like a Google Doc. And I would say that made the implementation plan a good deal less impressive. So I've, I've got views on that, but I thought it would be good for you to introduce what the Atlantic Council did. Sure. And I think what the Atlantic Council did through their DFER lab is brilliant, right? It's really, really well done and easy to go through and go, hey, yeah, those are good points that they're making. And the points are, you know, look at when the strategy document came out, it was a it was a framework, and in retrospect, it's kind of it's late, right? I'm I'm thinking back to the wake up call article in in Foreign Policy, I think is where William Lynn wrote it, mm-hmm. and that was 2008, right? And that's when at least the DoD woke up and realized, wow, we've been compromised over and over by the Chinese. We have to do something about it, and they did do something, right? They created U.S. Cyber Command. And the people that countered the agent.btz buckshot Yankee worm ended up heading up the new Cyber Command and NSA. Well, you were there. You know, you remember that well, I'm sure. So, okay, that's when we should have created a cybersecurity strategy that looks like the one we have today and gone down the path, followed up three months later by an implementation document like the one we have. And I think where people are starting to immediately respond is, yeah, this is great. It sounds a lot like the parts you left out of the strategy deck. Okay, how are we going to do this? Well, we're going to have a bunch of meetings and a bunch of agencies and assign responsibility, which is great. You have to assign responsibility. But there's no there there. There's no, we're going to do this. And as a matter of fact, we've done this. We have allotted budget. We've given budgetary authority to CISOs. Only, there are no CISOs in the federal government that have any spending authority, right? It's only the CIOs that have that. We are going to lobby Congress and we're going to get a law that says we have to do a better job. We're going to do something. We're going to, we're going to pass the breach disclosure law that's been in and out of every session of Congress since 2005. I was at the first one that was voted on. You know, we're going to actually do something. And this is a huge opportunity for CISA 
and the other, you know, Office of National Cybersecurity Director. We're going to, there's a huge opportunity for them to actually do something. And they should take the summer doldrums and get something done. And so we can talk about something other than policy and documents and plans for the future and reports that we have to keep reading to see if they're actually doing anything. Well, to put a fine point on that, the fact that we have the strategy and the strategy said some things that were groundbreaking. It had a provision that said, we're going to hold the stewards of our data accountable, which was basically saying, you guys have our data and you need to secure it. And if you don't, liability should follow. And then they had a provision that said, if you make an insecure product, we are going to shift liability to you. And so those were very bold statements. When it came time to say, how are you going to implement that? Defer Labs shows just how far they fell down. Article 3.1, hold the stewards of our data accountable, doesn't even have an implementation entry. It's like it wasn't in the report. And shift liability for insecure software products and services, it calls for a symposium in fiscal year 24 to make that happen. They might as well have said, we're just not doing it. So this is a great format because it shows you some of those failings. It does raise questions about how they got the strategy out with things in it that no one in the government was prepared to implement. And then this may tell us something about Chris Inglis's departure, Kemba Waldron's not getting the permanent nod, that actually trying to implement that turned out to be something that there was not as much of a constituency in the White House for as expected. And they punted and that hurt the reputation of the people who produced the strategy. I'm just guessing, but I suspect that happened. I think you're right. I think that the Atlantic Council cyber team realizes that if you're going to assign liability to the custodians of our data, you're calling out Microsoft and Google, right? They have, you know, Google, you know, we're all using uh, Google Chrome to record this, something I would otherwise not use at all. Chrome, of course, has more vulnerabilities than anything else ever produced, right? It's 2,000 critical vulnerabilities every single year. And Microsoft created the entire security industry by having products that were not secure. (laughs) And of course, they're still suffering from vulnerabilities and doing things wrong that cause a whole bunch of problems. They definitely don't want liability for all of that. Yeah. Okay. So, Gus, this sounds like good news on the cybersecurity front. Maybe small ball good news, but the Biden administration has come out with the energy saving label equivalent for cybersecurity. If you buy an Internet of Things product, it will give you a little trust mark that says this meets some basic trusts and security standards and here's where you can go to find out exactly what it will do. My memory is the main thing it does is says how long you're going to continue to get security updates for it. Yeah, so the energy label idea is exactly right. Uh, That's what this is. And this is actually the second energy label style initiative coming out of the Federal Communications Commission in the last couple of years. The other is the broadband broadband energy label. It's not an energy label, but information about your ISP's performance in a standardized label sort of way. And look, I'm a regulatory scholar and information asymmetries, a lack of information. These are basic reasons that we have regulation. And these are intended to push information from developers 
developers and companies making products to the consumers in an easy, accessible format, which more information is always better information. It's hard question to know how useful this type of information is, but I, I think it's an important experiment. I have some optimism, I think, as well about this. There are risks. Very frequently, these sort of certifications might communicate to consumers, this is a safe product. It's got a safety sticker on it. And well, <laughs> IoT devices aren't safe, <laughs> this doesn't make them safe. It just provides some information. Uh, on the flip side, a lot of consumers might not think about security at all. And this notice might get them to realize, oh, this is something that as a consumer, I need to be aware of. If you don't have that sticker reminding you to, I don't know, clean your dryer's lint trap before you use it, a lot of people won't know that they should do that. And their house is going to catch fire, maybe. So these simple notices can be powerful. So it's, a, I think, a really interesting experiment that we're launching on. But... The question that I have about it really isn't about its efficacy or if it's a good thing or a bad thing. And that this will dovetail us to the next item on our list, Stuart. What authority does the FCC have to actually do this? They are the Federal Communications Commission. I'm the sort of person who argues incessantly that the FCC is exceeding its statutory authority. I think they might have statutory authority to do this. They might not. We could argue about this. But... I think that one of the challenges that we have been facing and we're going to continue to face is regulators trying to stretch or find some statutory authority that they have in their organic statutes to do really arguably good basic cybersecurity things. So we have another example of this with the EPA. The EPA put in place some relatively modest requirements for energy firms to do uh, basic security audit sort of things. Wasn't this for water systems? Yeah, yeah, this is for water systems. Yeah, that, that's right, for water system security audits. And that rule was just enjoined by the Eighth Circuit. Uh, I was challenged by three Republican attorneys general as exceeding the EPA's statutory authority. The argument is that part of the argument is that the EPA statutory authority, there's an exception prohibiting them from doing this sort of regulation that will affect public water authorities below a certain size, 30,000 users or something like that. And the cybersecurity audit rules would apply to much smaller providers. And there's no particular regulatory authority over cybersecurity and water. They're really stretching uh, both their who can we regulate authority and what can we regulate about authority. So it's not a surprise that the Eighth Circuit would have said, uh, I don't think so. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And I could make the same argument about the FCC um, and cybersecurity notices on devices. Um, yeah, although I, you know, I just turned over my mouse and I have an FCC notice on the back of that mouse, which they had authority to do. And my guess is that that authority about labeling products, it's mostly about labeling products as not going to cause interference, but you can see how they've gotten a lot closer than EPA got. The label on the back of your mouse says that it might emit harmful interference and that it has to accept harmful interference. That has to do with spectrum regulation, which is clearly yes. within the FCC's authority. Cybersecurity is cl not clearly in their authority. Arguably, it is clearly not in their authority. And we're just going to go agency by agency, industry by industry. There are really good, basic, low-hanging fruit cybersecurity things that I think any honest broker in this space should 
be able to say, yeah, it's good for the FCC to be doing this. These are good things for the EPA to be trying to do. But if it imposes costs on industry, there are going to be good arguments that it exceeds their authority. So here's another quasi-regulatory move by a government agency without any obvious authority. Richard Sisa said, Microsoft needs to expand the free logging that you get for cybersecurity purposes when you get cloud services from Microsoft. And they've been saying that for really a year or two, probably because there was a hack about a year ago where CISA realized that they didn't see it coming because a lot of the agencies that were hacked didn't have the expanded, super cool logging feature that Microsoft was charging a lot for. And so Microsoft has backed down and said, we're going to make a lot of these logging tools available in our reduced cost or free tier. My thought is, well, that was really just jawboning. What we get, we're getting that free because Microsoft would rather give us that than give us straight answers about how Chinese hackers got access to their signing key. But your thoughts on, on this? Yeah, certainly. The one thing that it points out is that CISA's in regular talks with Microsoft, as of course we knew, but that's a great thing, right? Microsoft controls a lot of the digital ecosystem and is at the crux of a lot of the problems and the solutions. So a great place for CISA to have those conversations. And I think it feels a little like they use the hacking of some key government agencies, including the head of commerce, their email boxes uh, on Office 365. And they did that because Microsoft didn't take care of their signing keys appropriately. But they could have detected it if only they had access to the good logs, right, the, the extra ones. Actually, they did detect it, and they did detect it through the logs, as I understand it. I assume that conversation went, we found this. You didn't find it. We yeah. found it because we were using this this logging tool that you charge too much for. You need to make it available to other government customers and maybe other customers generally because it's too important a security tool. So, yeah, it was jawboning, and maybe that's a good deal. Maybe arm twisting. Not yep. job owning. The trouble is, of course, having a whole bunch of logs doesn't do anything for somebody that doesn't have a security team to interpret those logs. So they'll still have to go back to Microsoft and buy products from them. Fair enough. Yes. Okay. Now we get to the piece de resistance. I've kept it here just so you guys would stay on your toes. The Biden administration, FTC, Justice Department have unveiled their merger review guidelines. And I'm going to ask Gus to lead us through this to start us off because he's got an op-ed piece coming out about the time you're listening to this. It'll be in the Wall Street Journal. So what do the merger guidelines say and uh, what do you think of it? So the merger guidelines say that mergers are illegal. <laughs> 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 that might be a little bit of an overstatement, but not necessarily that much of one. Little bit of background. I'll be brief, Stuart. I'm, I'm talking way too much as usual. Thank you that you keep inviting me to come onto your show and talk too much. So starting in 1968 and then really uh, with revisions in 1982, the Department of Justice and Federal Trade Commission put out merger guidelines that basically inform the community. This is our understanding of the Clayton Act, the merger, antitrust merger laws, and this is how we're going to use that authority when we are reviewing mergers. And 
They've been incredibly influential over the last 40 years, especially since 1982. They have really done two things that have led to this influence. First, they have tracked judicial, changing judicial understandings of antitrust law and also changing economic understandings of when mergers may be good or bad for the economy. And because they have tried to hew so closely to the evolving judicial understanding of antitrust law, courts have found them very persuasive and have been pretty deferential to them. So it's kind of a restatement of merger law. Right. It's an effort to say, this is where we think the courts are with a little bit of body English on where they should be. Exactly. And it's no surprise and no secret that the Biden administration and the administration's heads of the Department of Justice and Federal Trade Commission are much more aggressive on antitrust law generally than they have been in previous decades. That's why they were appointed to head those agencies, to be aggressive enforcers, and because of their aggressive views on antitrust law. So we just got, they when they came in, I should say, starting in 2021, they announced that they were going to be looking at the merger guidelines and issuing changes, updating them. And they honestly think about these as an update that reflects their understanding of what antitrust law allows and the purposes of antitrust law. So this last week, we got their proposed revisions to the merger guidelines, and they basically return us to a pre-Chicago, pre-Borkian, pre-1982 understanding of uh, antitrust law. Among other things, they rely heavily on old case law that is technically still it hasn't been rejected by the Supreme Court. Cases, listeners will roll their eyes at this, they will gloss over, but uh, Brown Shoe and Philadelphia National Bank, which stand for propositions like a 30% market share is presumptively anti-competitive. And in fact, the new first guideline says that any merger that results in a market share of more than 30% and a very small increase in market share to get there is presumptively anti-competitive. So presumptively, the agencies would challenge that. So it gives them lots and lots of discretion to go out and implement their much more aggressive view. But when the courts read it, they're going to say, well, that's that's not the law that, as I understand it. Yeah, and that, that's exactly the key thing there, Stuart. They had that discretion to aggressively enforce the law before. The guidelines aren't binding. They're not binding on the courts. They don't say what the law is. The agencies don't have rulemaking authority here. So this isn't like an APA rulemaking authority process where the outcome gets some binding legal power over the courts. Rather, the guidelines are supposed to inform the community of what the agency's approach to mergers is going to be, and also try and be persuasive to the courts so that when they go into the courts, the court will say, okay, we see that you're following the guidelines that you've laid out, and these are reasonable. They track how we would approach the law here. These guidelines don't track how the courts over the last 20, 30 years have been thinking about antitrust law. They are a dark break, in fact, from judicial approaches to antitrust law over the last 30 years or so. What's going to happen when you march into court and you say, Your Honor, so-and-so here on behalf of the Department of Justice Antitrust Division, here's my argument. The court's going to look at this and say, look, your boss is telling you to come in here and ignore the law. That's not a good position to have going into uh, a litigation. Richard? 
My biggest concern is this is the wrong time to implement something like that, especially in the tech economy that I'm in, that mergers and acquisition are going to be the savior for the fallout. Rather than have failures, we're going to have companies selling for less than their investment, but the technology and sometimes the jobs will be protected. So I'd sure hate to see them come up with more draconian rules right when uh, the need for mergers is going to be there. Jeffrey? Well, I think Gus captures a lot of the history here. This whole system worked when we were on a deregulatory slope because all DOJ and FDC had to say is, we're not going to challenge. And that actually makes law because that's the end of the game. It doesn't go to the courts when you're deregulating and not challenging mergers. If you're going to make a 180 degree turn, yes, you're going to encounter all the turbulence that, that, that Gus spoke up. But in fact, we probably have thin law, and I, I'm not supportive of this necessarily, but if we have DOJ and FTC bringing opposition to mergers into the court, at least there's fodder there for the courts to decide whether they want to follow along or, or not. So there's kind of a structural asymmetry from how these things, how the guidelines have worked in the past when we were in a deregulatory mode, it's an open question whether they have any possibility if we're going to return to an earlier era in our antitrust thinking and our merger control thinking. Yeah, that, that's a, a great point. Yeah. I, I've actually argued for a long time that the agencies should litigate more cases and rely less, at least on the margin, on settlements, precisely because that's how you develop case law. And we need case law. We need precedent out there. So I, I agree 100% that more litigation is useful, is necessary, but the, the guidelines themselves should follow that litigation. They shouldn't precede that litigation. And that that's the flaw with the guidelines. And we, we see this, in fact, building on Richard's point. What happened last week in the, I guess, two weeks ago now with the FTC's views on mergers? Well, they had a massive loss in the Microsoft Activision case, massive loss in Meta Within. They are on a losing streak in litigation that suggests that their views of the direction that we should be going with antitrust law are not held by the courts. That's really, I think, troubling if you hope that the guidelines will reflect judicial understanding instead of the agency's understanding of antitrust law. All right. We've got two or three stories to get through. We'll try to do them quickly. Richard, the U.S. government picked a couple of European spyware firms little ones too, I think, to impose sanctions similar to their sanctions on NSO. I guess that's part of what the U.S. government thinks its job regulating the global market for spyware is. I don't myself get it. Is there anything that you would add to the story about Cytrox and Intellexa? Yeah. When you essentially sh shut down the major player, in this case, NSO Group, um, which maybe it suffered from the U.S. sanctions, but certainly suffered from internal stuff and changed ownership, and they're probably splitting off divisions. You're going to create competitors that say, hey, there's a vacuum to fill. Right. So smaller organizations will crop up, so the U.S. has to continue down that path. These are nefarious organizations who come from intelligence communities and law enforcement, and then they sell back to them. But they're struggling startups trying to make good on investors' capital, and they're going to accept 
Saudi Arabia as a customer. They got lots of money. So their product is going to be used for nefarious things. Yeah, but what's the end game here? They, they drive out of business everybody who is located in a Western country so that people who want spyware have to get it from Russia or China, which is not going to care what the sanctions are. And so we've turned over the market such as it is to Chinese and Russian companies. And of course, the Chinese and Russian companies are going to build spyware into the spyware. So the people who are buying the spyware are also going to be subject to intelligence collection by Russia and China. I don't see how the U.S. government is getting a lot out of this moralistic campaign. Maybe it's only that authoritarian states will spy on their citizens in the blatant way, and it'll be free for all. Any police department can yeah. do it. Any agency can do it. But in the Western world, not so much, though it'll still happen. Okay. Yeah. I think that's also true of the Western world because of you know things like law. Okay. Europe recently kind of woke up to discover that a lot of the European semiconductor engineers were originally Chinese nationals, and a lot of them had gone back because... China was paying them a lot more than they could earn in Europe. Jeffrey, this sounds utterly plausible. And what I'm surprised is that somebody hasn't written the same story about the U.S. because I'm sure the same thing happens here. Exactly, Stuart. That's exactly what the question that this report raises is. So, well, what are the numbers for the U.S.? I imagine there are as many, if not more, Chinese nationals that have been working in U.S. industry, how many of them are are going back? It's just an interesting juxtaposition of this suddenly reverse brain drain anxiety that's felt probably both in Europe and in the United States as Chinese nationals return home with thoughts in their head that may or may not constitute trade secret theft with the current U.S. efforts to starve China from advanced semiconductor technology. This obviously is a potential source of Chinese catch-up, which uh, triggers uh, all kinds of concerns on this side. Uh, yep. Okay, two techno-panic stories in which bien Ponsant class says, wait a minute, technology is being used to catch criminals. That can't be right. So I thought the, I think it was a New York Times story about how if you combine artificial intelligence with license plate readers, you can suddenly do all kinds of pattern recognition. And it looks like the New York cops found a dope dealer just by looking at his travel patterns. Yeah. So, Stuart, I'll be quick on these pieces because I think they're, they're interesting, but also we don't have much new to say on them. Boy, oh boy, we, we can use technology to identify troubling patterns and identify criminals, tracking their cars, tracking their faces, tracking their cell phones. And you know what? If we can do that without errors, I think that that is great. And I want to live in that world. There are going to be errors. So there are hard questions. And how do we balance the risks to encroachment of individual freedom and liberty, especially when a lot of this can be outsourced from the government to private actors that then can provide this information to the government, bypassing Fourth Amendment protections? Well, now we're in a scary dystopian world and we're trying to figure out where that line is. And my biggest concern with all these discussions is there's a lot of good that can be done here. I want to live in a world where we can use AI to identify serious criminals and get them off the streets. 
I don't want to live in a world where low-level employees at DHS can query databases just because they're interested in making my life miserable or picking fights with their political enemies. Um, so it's a balancing problem. I did enjoy, I have to say, I read the serial killer from Gilgo Beach stories. I just couldn't resist. It did feel like a thriller in which they gradually identified where he lived, where he worked, more or less, and then started saying, what else do we know? They got a car description. They found a car in the area where he lived that was registered there. And then they said, well, that's our guy. Maybe can we match his DNA to one of the victims? And they managed to do that. He's been, he's been doing this for 20 or 30 years to finally catch him because of these new technologies. It was, it was sort of satisfying. All right, last story is another kind of techno panic story. We're being told we should be really upset because the FBI checked a 702 database with the name of a senator, not identified, and they did it inconsistent with the compliance rules that have been set for access to the 702 database, which of course is collection on foreigners, but there are foreigners who are interacting with Americans. So you want to know if you've got a reason to believe that the data that has been collected about those foreigners will return something for the person you're interested in, then you can search it. But the evaluators of this search said it was not a good search, even though the senator was being targeted by foreign intelligence. Uh, and I was, it was very unclear how it was that, that the FBI guy who said, huh, well, if he's being targeted by a foreign intelligence service, maybe I'll check these records of foreign intelligence targets to see if his name's in the record. But they said no. And I think it may be he just used his last name. He didn't try to limit the search. Maybe there was no obvious reason to think that he would be in touch with these particular targets. I frankly think as opposed to a scandal about FBI abuses, this is starting to look like a scandal about writing rules that actually deter people from conducting reasonable searches that will protect, in this case, a senator. Nobody's going to do that again. And especially because under enormous pressure from Congress, the FBI has started to say, yeah, we could even prosecute you for doing this. And so agents are just going to say, well, maybe I'll just decide that the better part of valor is not to do these searches. So that's the latest semi-scandal. I think it's a scandal that they said this search was bad, but uh, the scandal that you're going to hear about in the press is FBI conducts warrantless surveillance of a senator. It's nothing like that. Okay, Richard, Jeffrey, Gus, thanks for joining us for our swan song for the summer. To our listeners, if you've got questions or comments, send them to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a review. We're always get, glad to get reviews. We sometimes read them on the air. Uh, and that's it. This has been episode 469 of the Cyber Law Podcast.
you can't scratch somebody in Silicon Valley without finding a, a musk in, in, in ambition, if not in fat.